A final wrap of the Under-19 World Cup, leaked USA documents, news out of Africa and the ACL draw. That's all coming up on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Thank you for joining us for the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick and with me are the EC regulars first, the man known as Copernicus Cricket on Twitter, Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? I'm all right, Bez. I managed to get to 1917 at last uh, in the movies on the weekend. Oh, yes. Have you seen it? Not yet. I'm interested to hear your thoughts as well as Tim's, if he's seen it as well, given he is a huge cinephile. I'm guessing he has already. No, I'm just interested what it's like to go back to the year that uh, Nick Skinner's mobile phone was manufactured. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, outstanding chat. (laughs) It was around the same time as this movie set, actually, Tim, funnily enough. Um, The Germans cut my lines, which is why it finally broke last week. It was like a bed knobs and broomsticks scene with the Germans and now we need to use magic to uh, to get all the old suits of armour to come up and rise above <laughs> the invading hordes. Is that what happened? <laughs> was Angela Lansbury there? Oh, oh, I don't think so. I'm... I don't want to see it. <laughs> oh dear. Um, no, it, it, was, it was an excellent film. It was very interesting. Uh, the, the central sort of conceit is that it's filmed as one long take and it's not a true one-take film. Um, it's, it's sort of stitched together in a couple of spots, but it's it's an interesting device. And the, the thing about it, it forces your perspective to be around the characters and it's it's a lot more sort of claustrophobic than a lot of war movies, which have you know, big sort of epic battles. And, and it got me thinking, there's a, a Francois Truffaut quote about how there's no such thing as an anti-war movie because movies inherently glorify war by showing battles and, and you know epic conflict and your heroes but this film does a pretty good job of avoiding that by it shows the aftermath of the war it doesn't really show any battles and, and so you see the rubble and the the wreckage and the dead bodies but you, you don't actually see the the bit that would be glorifying it you just see the you know horrible aftermath and so that's an interesting way of sidestepping that and i think it's very well worth seeing film uh, if you're interested in uh, war movies or, or just just movies in general before we do move on to the Emerging Cricket Podcast, this segment is the War Movies R Us podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Ben Stinger. <laughs> I remember watching Dunkirk and, and thinking having those three storylines put together was an interesting move. I'm still not sure what I make of that. I did enjoy that movie and, and a lot of people are comparing Dunkirk to 1917, so I should probably go out and watch it at some point. To properly introduce the third member of the Emerging Cricket Podcast, we have our very own favourite left-arm orthodox spinner up in Brisbane, Tim Cutler. Tim, how are you? I'm okay. I almost felt like an introduction wasn't necessary there after my interlude regarding bedknobs and broomsticks, <laughs> but yeah. good to be here. Sort of talking about it before, weren't we? It's a little bit of a, a lull as we record here. Exciting as Nepal's first home ODIs approach and of course by the end of this podcast we'll in magical podcast land you'll be able to update everybody on the scores as they are when we put the podcast live but um, no I'm I'm good the under 19s it's always tough when you're not able to watch a lot of these games to get a feel for for how the teams the emerging teams have progressed you know we don't often see any associates in the in the later rounds i know we've seen nepal and, and namibia in the past and afghanistan before they became a full member but it's tough you you want to see these teams progress um you know they're not progressing to a level of winning events but they're growing and learning and it would have been nice to be able to watch that looks like or sounds like we're going to be able to hear andrew leonard 
describe the action in Kathmandu and actually watch it as well, which is exciting. We missed the last Cricket World Cup League 2 when Oman decided not to stream it. So that is going to be good, not so great for productivity, though. Uh, Yes, Uh, with a lot of matches Coming up uh, in the next week with that tri-series, Nepal's first home ODI series. And a lot of talk has gone on in regards to that. And we actually did our whole preview last week. So if you did miss that, make sure to jump on that podcast because we do look at all three teams in depth. But yeah, Tim, looking forward to it. And a good time zone for us Australian fans of emerging cricket. I'm not too sure how it will go everywhere west of Nepal, but from here, it's good primetime viewing at least. So looking forward to that. But let's discuss, I suppose, the cleanup of the Under-19 World Cup, which is about to reach its conclusion. And the one emerging team still playing in that competition is Afghanistan, who are battling for seventh place and taking on South Africa this week. Just to go through a few of the final results. Scotland finished 12th by losing out to Zimbabwe in that 11th place match. Canada defeated UAE to finish 13th and Nigeria defeated Japan to finish 15th. A few encouraging performances from a range of teams, boys. And Nick, I'll start with you. We've seen Japan return home and receive a pretty warm welcome on their return to Japan. Uh, we've seen Canada defeat the UAE to finish 13th, uh, your beloved Canada, and a few strong performers there. Who's stood out for you as we do sort of clean up our Under-19 World Cup coverage for the podcast here? I'm sure there have been a few players that have uh, made themselves known in the, in the consciousness of Nick Skinner's cricket knowledge. Um, well, firstly, for Canada, I'd say Akil Kumar's probably the standout. He picked up 16 wickets across the tournament. That does include six against Japan, but he also took a four for against South Africa. And he, he's a solid number three batsman, so he, he looks a good prospect. The rest of the guys couldn't really quite string it together. 13th is, is pretty disappointing after you know talking to uh, Farouk Kamani, the, the coach ahead of the tournament. He was targeting a top eight finish, which I mean, I, I thought was a bit ambitious, but I thought top 10 was uh, doable. Basically, they just uh, didn't have enough penetration with the ball and, and the batting was a bit too fragile. You know, the left arm opening combo of, of Joshi and Kamal just wasn't incisive enough. And, and Dio Sami, who batted really well in the qualifiers, just couldn't put it together with the bat and you know looking at the lineup and where they go from here is is an interesting question because in in that you know interview with with Kamani I talked a bit about just the fact that so many guys in the past who've performed well at under 19s level haven't made the transition up to the national side and and you know he did say that was something that they needed to address and and work on because that's that's where you're you know, your next generation of talent comes from. I, I, I don't know where they, um, what the problem is with the pathway. Um, you know, I, I look at this side and most of them are from Toronto. So potentially just getting more guys from around the rest of the country in, involved would be helpful. But then obviously there's the logistical challenges. So yeah, a lot, a lot to think about for the Canadians. Um, as you said, there is a lot of talent there, but I think they need more opportunities, especially moving into the national side in order to actually develop and, and take that next step to try and get a, a pipeline of talent coming through. Yeah, and sort of the other three teams, you know, it's always tough to gauge uh, how they've progressed or not. You know, a couple of names in Japan we're looking out for, especially Marcus Thurgate. You know, he was only able to score 27 runs across five innings. And, you know, we have read and, and heard about how much of a linchpin he was going to be for that batting lineup. So you would you would have liked to have seen a score there from one of their batters, uh, especially in that game against Nigeria. But it was good to see Date and Gucci get some runs. Uh, Scotland. I think although they're playing in South Africa and not as spin-friendly conditions as perhaps the softer wickets in the British Isles 
but I think we would have hoped that they would have done a little bit more than they have. Nigeria, it was good to see them get their maiden win at a global event. And yes, it was in the playoff for second and last place and against Japan. But this is only going to help them on their road. I saw a news article not only congratulating them on their return, but also talking about how they're going to build four more turf grounds and they're going to build high-performance academies around all of those. So, you know, there's a long way to go for them to catch up behind football as a, as a national sport, but it's great to see the energy. And although cricket's been played there for a long time, it's great to see the, the advancement. And albeit it's been on the back of a little bit of luck when it came to the senior side, but this under-19s team got through you know an undefeated African qualifier so hopefully we see them go from strength to strength in that respect yeah we have more news on Nigeria and its infrastructure a little bit later in the show but to continue on the under 19s chat and Japan we knew it was obviously going to be a challenge coming into this tournament and given their qualification circumstances but I do feel that they improved as the tournament went on the scores were incrementally better and they did make the highest score albeit against Nigeria in a defeat but it showed that that experience definitely helped even in a two week period you know they played against England and put in a better show than say India and you would say that India and England at this level are pretty comparable in terms of their quality and looking at Sano and the development of, of Japanese cricket I think the next five to ten years are important development stages for cricket in the country but looking at guys like Shunaguchi and, and Neil Date with their scores Date making a 50 against Canada which is hugely encouraging Noguchi looks solid and and to say that you know okay Marcus Thurgate didn't have a great tournament and, and he for many was going to be the out and out leader and, and dominant run score on the team it's probably encouraging to see some of the other guys come through and contribute with the bat which I think shows that they've definitely got a lot of potential to, to fill in the coming years and then looking at Gafari at Afghanistan taking a bunch of wickets and being such a key figure with them I was really impressed with Jonathan Fiji at UAE and uh, Vicha Aravind as well he was a supreme timer of the ball the, the one television match I managed to watch him play in I think he made 31 off about as many deliveries and, and the timing of, of his shots was something to behold and then also at UAE you've got Arian Lakra who managed to chime in with a bunch of wickets as well so these are definitely names that we'll hear over the next few years on the Emerging Cricket Podcast as they move into the senior teams we know Fiji's already played uh, at senior level for UAE for Scotland it was probably a little bit disappointing we were probably expecting McIntosh and, and Guy to contribute a little bit more with the bat but Uzair Shah made 148 runs at an average of a tick under 25 so that's a little bit more encouraging and whether or not you know the qualification pathway stayed the same for the under 19 World Cup it remains to be seen but I think given the circumstances it's probably the ideal format to have regional based qualifying and it gives a chance to, to develop the game at youth level well across the board and across the world so hopefully you know that continues in in the coming cycles as well uh, now to some news in the USA and it comes from Peter Delapena of ESPN Crick Info who always has his finger to the pulse a couple of things breaking that have actually leaked in terms of news and, and, and Peter Delapena has managed to acquire some of these news stories over the last week or so and there's a few different stories happening all at the same time but from a men's team's point of view there's been a, a bit of controversy coming out of the USA camp with Stephen Taylor being stripped of his vice captaincy of the national team in news that we did give you last week it's actually come out over the last few days that Stephen Taylor as well as Monang Patel had arrived drunk for a USA team meeting in UAE their last Cricket World Cup League 2 leg of course they are in Nepal now competing in the Nepali leg of 
the Cricket World Cup League 2 action. But Peter Delapena accessed a, an article or at least a, a document saying that the decision to sack Taylor as vice-captain was made after he arrived in an intoxicated condition at a meeting in the UAE. Uh, it happened on December 13. And according to uh, James Pamant's comments, he stated that his behavior at the meeting was extremely disrespectful and in total contempt to everything the group had been striving to achieve. Uh, and the other story coming out of the USA is that an administrator tied to the Willow Cricket Academy claims that the USA minor league T20 competition is set to launch in April. So that's just two months away without no prior knowledge of this to now. No public announced details, no number of franchises, specified cities, squad selection, no schedule and no ground venues finalized. It all looks to be an attempt at, at doing this all rather quickly. There's more details in this document talking about uh, how many under-19 players there needs to be in each squad. But the big controversy comes from the origination of players who are playing inside the Willow Cricket Academy and all players needing to be playing in that academy to be eligible to play in the tournament. Uh, it leads to an exclusivity complex with USA Cricket and it just shows at the moment that things definitely aren't going in plain sailing for the USA Cricket team, Tim, and, and USA Cricket in general just seems to be having these pains and inconsistencies across the board that's making it very difficult for, for the sport to develop there. Seems to be um, the DeLorean back out again. We was in action a couple of weeks ago with the ICC board going back to big three times, and it looks like Stephen Taylor's going back to I think it was about eight years ago. I'm um, reading inside the selection room actually. I, I uh, took a little snippet of it last night and sent it to the group, didn't I? Saying, "Geez, it sounds like the same thing again with Stephen Taylor," which is is disappointing for a guy of his talent, USA player, born and bred, and a product of the system. A little bit disappointing. Hopefully, that's dealt with, but it's not very endearing for someone in, in a, a leadership position, thus him losing that. But uh, yeah, this news about the minor league is an interesting one where there was leaked document. Um, Peter posted about it and wrote an article and another cricket journalist in America said, oh, the truth will come, come out, the truth will come out. But it doesn't look like any truth has come out beyond a rebuttal coming from the USA Cricket CEO himself, Ian Higgins, saying that it's been taken out of context and it's not saying that the Rookie League will only take players from the Willow Cricket Academy. So there's a lot of he said, she said based on this information. A lot of people are making their opinions known online, but I guess we'll only know once the information comes out. But any anything that's sort of restricting the access of American kids to get involved can't be great for the game. So I can only hope that this has been taken out of context and they might have been talking and trying to get guys into the academy of saying that they They've got this link to the rookie league, but it doesn't look good, does it? Well, it doesn't look good, and it's the latest step in in the ACE uh, Willow saga, I guess, in the, in the way that they you know, they've got their fingers in a lot of pies in terms of American administration of their cricket. You know, they've they've got ACE heavily involved with the coaching setup, and they've got ACE slash Willow running these academies, which is it's basically a private company running these academies, but exclusively doing the board's development work. It's a weird situation, and perhaps it, you know it could only happen in America where they they love their private so much that the sports governing body has sort of privatized the sport but it's a really strange situation administratively and you know we, we've had concerns about it in the past with the amount of influence that ACE as well ultimately a, a broadcasting partner they're exerting a lot of influence over the actual running of the game and you know we, we've seen you know in Australia Channel 9 trying to dictate terms to Cricket Australia in the past but you know, nothing like this where there's so much control that, that ACE wants to have over you know selection and, and apparently over who is allowed to be considered for for this league and all sorts of things like that. So it's quite a 
unfortunate situation, really, if, if you're just a ground level cricket player in America, that there's this kind of uh, takeover almost in the boardroom. And it's bizarre that USA cricket, as this you know shiny new board recently reinstated by the ICC, it's, it's quite strange that they're going down this path where it's less than perhaps uh, accountable or you know, not as transparent as they could be, where it's, it's all a bit murky. Well, another story that appears to be very murky coming out of the USA, and it involves England fast bowler Liam Plunkett uh, in quite a rare combination. I never in a hundred years thought that Liam Plunkett would ever get a mention on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, but there's talk, and this is a story that was broken by the Daily Mail again. (laughs) I never thought I'd mention uh, the Daily Mail in an Emerging Cricket Podcast in a hundred Sundays, but Liam Plunkett has apparently held preliminary talks about representing the USA, and it comes through his American spouse. Now, he's 34 and would be 37 by the time he qualifies for the United States in February 2022 uh, under the new eligibility laws. I believe you'd have to live for 10 out of 12 months in the USA to be eligible. The story reads that he is still committed to representing England, but he fears that his English career may be coming to an end. We do talk about, you know, eligibility and and players coming in uh, or playing as, as expats players and it's a buzzword in emerging cricket. It's a bit of a dirty word and I know that we don't like to mention it a lot but it is an interesting situation this where they could well be parachuting Liam Plunkett into an American team despite having no real Americanness. Uh, where does this sit in, in the whole eligibility expat debate Nick? It, it's a strange one and, and for Plunkett you would think that him consigning himself to trying to play for an associate member and not exactly a strong one at that almost shows to you perhaps a lack of ambition as he tries to still play for England, but with this is almost like a backstop. Well, it's quite a strange. Um, my first question is just why? What does he get out of this? Is he just desperate to stay in the international arena? I mean, no one plays associate cricket because it's exactly a, a lucrative career option. And as a you know very solid county bowler, he could continue with that career for a long while yet. So it's it's quite a strange situation. I wonder if it's just a case of he he sort of just realised, oh hey, my wife's American, maybe I could play for America if this England thing doesn't work out. And you know it undercuts. Yeah, you know, we talk about the expat thing, and a lot of the time it's misguided and. And really quite unfair to the players who you know have lived there for a long time, or you know are products of the system, but might have been born overseas, or you know like Stephen Taylor have been born and raised and lived pretty much their entire life in America. But it undercuts that. And what does it say to the other you know hundreds of thousands of? people playing cricket in America that a guy like Liam Plunkett can just be parachuted into the team if indeed it happens. Yeah, I've got to agree there. You know, I go blue in the face defending or at least arguing against people who accuse certain countries' teams of being rented players, franchise players, or rejects from um, other other countries. It's an interesting one considering he's so recent of a player as well in the, in the World Cup. And for those that have read his comments about that, he went from being, by his own admission, one of the strongest players in the World Cup for for England then basically told you don't have a place in our future plans so I'm guessing that's what he's been told he's not going to be picked for England again and he's looking around and seeing his options the only thing I would say if he was to pursue this it'd be great if he moved there and actually played cricket within the United States but if he's got a contract that runs out until 2021 or 2022 then that doesn't sound like that's going to be happening so any benefit beyond him parachuting and playing for them I'm not sure but um, yeah look when they came up with eligibility rules and being a part passport holder you're a citizen of a country and therefore you you should be eligible to play but um, this sort of flies in the face of everything
when we talk about about developing local programs or having those players actually benefit those programs and, and the cricketing nations. Well, yeah, there's the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, and obviously it's going to be tough to tell a you know a citizen of a country that they're not allowed to play for that country. But I'm sure this wasn't really the intention of of the eligibility rules. It's funny you mentioned the accusation of old franchise players. Well, the way American cricket's being run is almost like a franchise. It's quite strange. Um, this goes back to the ACE stuff, where there's is basically a private company calling the shots with a national team board and essentially running it like they've bought a franchise team. You know, they bring in players like they would in a franchise team. So yeah, it, it's it's very disappointing. And and it goes back to a point we've made a bit in the past about how I, I think a lot of the time associate teams are, are dazzled perhaps by full member experience and, and think, oh, well, you know, if a guy's played for a full member, they must be good. So let's get them in the team straight away. Whereas that's not necessarily the case. You know, you look at Cameron Gannon's performance for the US in the regional qualifiers for the T20 World Cup global qualifier. And he wasn't that great. And he's had a decent season for Queensland. So it, it's not like he's a useless player. So it's, I think, overstated. Now, Liam Plunkett's a quality bowler, but just generally speaking, the fact that you have full member experience isn't necessarily a guarantee that you're going to do well at associate level. And just a final comment on Plunkett, even though he might be being phased out as an English option, it would only take, I think, a couple of injuries and unavailabilities, and Plunkett is almost one of the first players picked in that team, at least in, in the bowling attack. So, again, it is a strange one, but to, to look at the USA framework and the ACE issues, it, it seems to be a case of them trying to find every single technicality they can in, in order for something like this to happen. Uh, whether or not it benefits American cricket in the long run, it remains to be seen and yeah Nick you raised a really good point they're just talking about countries being dazed by full member quality and even guys coming from domestic cricket in, in strong full member nations and, and qualifying for the USA it hasn't been a guarantee that those players do well we, we've seen a number of players at the level of associate cricket really struggle even though they have perhaps a resume that you would think would make them good associate international cricketers and it, and it hasn't been the case so it'll be interesting to see if what the developments are in this case because look yeah <laughs> I'd love to see Liam Plunkett charging in, in in associate cricket but I just don't think the heart's there from either side to make it work okay well there has been some international full member cricket on the emerging side of things with Zimbabwe taking on Sri Lanka in a test series there Sri Lanka won the first test match convincingly the second test match was a draw between the two sides though I think Zimbabwe might be a little bit disappointed that they didn't get more out of this match setting a a target of 361 for Sri Lanka on the final day and playing out for the draw finishing 3 for 204 Kamundu Mendes making an unbeaten 100 but Sekanda Raza stood out as an excellent performer in in this match Um, uh, man of the match. He took eight wickets across the two innings, seven in the first innings, and made scores with the bat in both innings. He made 70-odd in the first innings and 34 in the second. Uh, he's a quality Zimbabwean player who could well go down as, as one of Zimbabwe's best by the time he finishes up. But we also saw Sean Williams with a 107 in the first innings and then finishing off the second innings with a 53 not out. He actually declared after the first ball on day five. He was on 47 not out, hit a six to go to 53, and then declared straight away which is as a captain it, it looks a little bit selfish given that you've wasted a little bit of time there to complete your 50 but wasting you know critical time to, to get a result here but I think it might have been irrelevant given that Sri Lanka did finish three down at the end of the test match Nick you have to say it was a positive performance by Zimbabwe but they would have much preferred to take all 10 wickets on day five and you would think on a day five pitch they would have been able to do it but Sri Lanka held firm. 
Yeah, they were missing a few guys who, who could have made a difference in the bowling department. Obviously, Blessing Mazurabani is the first name that springs to mind, but you know, even someone like a, a Graham Kramer, whose spin has been very successful in the past, who's estranged from the, the current administration, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. But yeah, good good performance overall. I, I was impressed by um, Kevin Casuza across the, the two games, you know, their new opener, who's Looks, you know, very temperamentally solid and um, has a solid head too by the looks of things after being knocked on the noggin a couple of times across the two games. But yeah, seeing Zimbabwe, after Embledinia really bundled them out in the first game, seeing them turn around and, and score a lot of runs against him. You know, obviously, Brendan Taylor is a quality player. Sean Williams is, is a good player. And Raza, of course, is a you know, heroic figure in Zimbabwean cricket for, for both on-field and off-field reasons. But yeah, looking across the card there, they've got a lot of talent coming through Zimbabwe, which is encouraging and almost surprising given the the situation there but for Sri Lanka again it's a good workout they'll be a bit disappointed they folded for 293 in in their first innings because with all due respect to Raza he's not usually the guy who's going to bowl a team out but yeah we saw in the second innings they they got their act together so this this was a really good series and i know it took place outside the the world test championship but that's more the pity because with a bit more context and and perhaps a bit more media attention which i know you wrote a a very good piece about uh media attention uh, for smaller teams bears but yeah i don't know i I just think these teams that that play you know it was a close game it was a good game it was a good series and yet almost nobody's talking about it precisely because the media is not interested and there's just no coverage and and it's disappointing that good cricket just goes unseen well i guess there's a greater existential question there as to whether more people would be watching this if it was part of the world test championship i think there's still a lot of confusion and ill-informed views out there about about how it is and the the points and whatnot but that by the side i think there were two things that uh, that i think about this is that it's disappointing to see the fight shown by the zimbabwean players being contrasted by the news that's come out this week that they're going to be taking a pay cut which i sort of think well at least they're getting paid to uh, to get a pay cut because they've all too often gone without pay for months when zc has been struggling but with the amount of money that comes through to zimbabwe cricket over 10 10 million dollars a year i think up closer to 12 million dollars a year from the icc and yes i know that that tap had been turned off but that that money should be flowing again and there's enough money coming through there to compensate those players and considering how much more you can get for your dollar there for a us dollar the, these players should be looked after it's it's their livelihood and of course there's lots of things to be investing in across the whole sphere of the domestic setup and getting first class cricket back into the country again but to see that it's obviously cost them that much money that there is rumors now that the island tour that was going to have a test match and a couple of T20s is now going to be ODIs and T20s, which again brings the question of, of the how useful Test cricket is if, it, if it's costing these countries money to play it and whether the regulations around tests and them needing to be broadcast or, or whatever there is, it needs to become more accessible and not being a cost centre like it has been for Zimbabwe in this context. So this story came out as the test match was being played and it reminded me of that Australian political trick and I'm sure it happens elsewhere across the world where when there's a large sporting event going on that's when a lot of the big movements in politics goes on just so they can sweep it under the carpet and it gets absolutely no media exposure whatsoever and it was exactly the same thing here well at least that's the impression that I got that that there was the talk of the salaries being cut and it was broken by uh, New Zimbabwe and Nick you're a little bit of of a Zimbabwe Zimbabwe expert in the in this group because you follow a lot of the the ins and outs of Zimbabwe cricket quite in depth 
And the idea of the of the ICC stepping in and reinstating this board, looking now, is a little bit strange because there seems to be a mismanagement. And and with the funding, they they're not getting bad funding from the ICC. And I I just really want to know where all this money's going, and and it's not going into the players' pockets. And I'm just worried that it's being siphoned out to to someone who who's up to sinister activity. Well, I think that's a pretty uh, well founded fear. If you look at the recent history of the Zimbabwe board, you know, just Google the Metbank scandal for a start, where the various Zimbabwe cricket administrators were also involved in a bank and and allegedly mismanaged an ICC loan to, well, essentially enrich themselves. Yeah, there's a lot of alleged corruption and and various other sinister activities going on. Uh, In terms of the ICC stepping in, this, I mean, we we talked about this when it happened, but it's it's very disappointing that the ICC stepped in to defend this particular board because, you know, the, the government interfered, if you want to put it that way, by trying to investigate the current board for corruption and mismanagement. And and instead of the ICC working with that and, and maybe using it as an opportunity to, to clean up Zimbabwean cricket, they doubled down on, on the current board and, and reinstated them and pushed the uh, Zimbabwean government to reinstate them. And it's just extremely disappointing that the ICC can have so much support for such a questionable administration. And as you say, where's the money going? You know, you, you look at the amount of money going into Zimbabwe and you know their facilities are not as good as they could be for the amount of money that they're getting. Uh, you know, you, you compare it to a country like Ireland, which gets a fraction of the money that Zimbabwe does, and, and their facilities are in substantially better condition. Uh, you, you look at somewhere like even Nepal and their ability to maintain the TU ground compared to Harare Sports Club or, or various other grounds around the country in Zimbabwe, which are, are falling into disrepair. It's, where's the money going? If the players have to take a pay cut, well, what are they spending this on? You know, we've have uh, Mukulani, the administration's coming out and saying, oh, well, we all need to tighten our belts and all the usual sort of stuff but where is it going and i think the past actions by by zimbabwe has shown that it's not going anywhere productive it's probably going somewhere uh, quite dodgy and i think the icc really needs to to have a long hard look at themselves and and you know why are they supporting this board even you know going back a few years into the past where the mugabe regime was still in power and and uh, all sorts of sinister activities you know tatenda taibu was a as a, as a young wicketkeeper tatenda taibu was a was a great hero of mine on the field but then reading about some of the stuff that he had to deal with, uh, you know, Mugabe government operatives following him and his family and, and and threatening them. And that's the sort of stuff that we're dealing with. And yet the ICC continually pumped money into that rotten administration and, and they're just doing nothing to step in and rein them in, even when the administration is mismanaging ICC money. It's bizarre to me that the ICC's not doing anything about this. Well, some more news coming out of African cricket, and it's a little bit more positive out of Nigeria, uh, with the Nigerian Cricket Federation Vice President Uyi Akpata predicting that they will have four more turf wickets in the country uh, across four ovals in Abuja, Abadan, Benin, and the TBS oval in Lagos, which will be getting an upgrade. They're planning on 2020 being a year of developing facilities in a push for continued cricket development in the country. We have seen, of course, their under-19 World Cup campaign just happened as well as their ICC T20 World Cup qualifying campaign last year and turf wickets are a necessity in developing the game at the high end because it gives the chance for some of the elite players to, to practice on a range of diverse surfaces and experiencing the, the differences in, in cricket across different wickets and in different conditions and it looks to be a good development structure for Nigeria to put in place because ultimately that's where your next crop of international cricketers are going to come from, from the domestic scene 
Absolutely. We talk about Nigeria a lot and for good reason. 200 million people, a country that uh, loves their national sporting teams. We've discussed how the likes of cricket in the Olympics will, will help in a lot of these countries that really do get behind, in a patriotic sense, their national sporting teams, no matter what sport they are, and generate interest that way. So by developing these quality facilities to be able to nurture and develop talent, it's only going to be great for the outlook for Nigerian cricket. I am just hoping that the ICC is nice and close about about coach education and that they're getting lots of quality courses there about developing the next generation of coaches because it's all well and good having talent out there but if the coaches aren't duly educated then you don't want to have bad habits being taught and just being passed on and on and on so that's about the only thing that sort of has got my mind thinking um it's great that they got lots of local talent and local coaches but as long as they're getting the right advice then look we keep watching on keenly and hopefully it's just an emerging giant yeah and i think that's right emerging giant is is right there tim and again, I've just been slating the ICC for their mismanagement of Zimbabwe. But if someone at the ICC is listening, I'm, I would say invest right now in, in Nigeria because they're only going to get bigger. And it's it, not only it's the population, it, it's the economy which is growing. And you, know, you look at something like the mints, Mexico, Indonesia, Nigeria, Turkey. It's a set of economies that's been sort of uh, earmarked for rapid growth by various people like Goldman Sachs and, and uh, Fidelity and whoever else. And uh, Jim O'Neill, uh, an economist who sort of coined the term as well as the BRICS. You know, it, it's a big investment opportunity in the business world and your you know return for investment is going to be huge so i think if the icc was smart they'd be getting in now as the economy is growing and and to position cricket as a growing sport there is is just only makes good business sense in terms of the grounds and the development i think that's very smart of them to be doing high performance centers because you, know, you look at somewhere like japan where they they put a lot of resources into their high performance center and, and developing the the next crop of talent coming through and it's really worked out for them in terms of you know getting to that under 19s world cup and a really good group of players coming through so i think the facilities as well it's interesting you know talking to um the philippines a couple of years ago and their plans for growing the game one of the one of the things they said was that you know generating interest in the sport is one thing but you need to have the facilities to back it up and if young guys and girls are, are interested in the sport what do they do next so that's where the facilities and the high performance stuff comes in so that's why i think it looks like nigeria's you know the the administration there at least has, has got their head screwed on because they're not just drumming up interest that's one part of it you know they talk about reaching i think it was 200,000 kids in in schools and whatnot and that's one part of it but then also having the infrastructure to back it up so that you know if the kids they do like cricket they you know get a taste for it in school or whatever then they can go and play it in in one of these performance centers so i, I think this is a really smart approach yeah well said nick i think we'll be really interested to see how nigeria continue in their development in international cricket because economically and by population it's a country that will potentially boom into an African power so if they can rival football in terms of their popularity in Nigeria I can easily see them making a push for for higher honours in cricket in the area and it will keep all the other African teams on their toes and that would be good to see because more competition ultimately gives us a a better product to to analyse and to talk about and a competition that is going on is Cricket World Cup League 2 in Nepal the tri-series there in the Nepali leg of course it's Nepal's first home ODI series Uh, and here's here are the results thus far in the series. Nepal fell 18 runs short in the first match of the Tri-Series, chasing a target of 197 against Oman, with Mohammed Nadim's unbeaten 69 and 1 for 10 off 4 overs, earning him the Player of the Match award. For Nepal, Sharad Vasorka made 55, with Karan KC taking 4 for 47, and debutant Sushan Bari finishing with 3 for 14 with his left arm orthodox. 
In the second match, Oman successfully chased down a target of 214 against USA with six wickets in hand and with three balls to spare. Mohamed Nadim again claimed Player of the Match Award honours with an all-round performance of three for 43 off eight overs and 55 not out. Other performers include Ian Holland, who made 65 and took one for 41, and Akib Ilyas, who had made 72 with the bat. We'll have a full wrap of that series once it concludes, but a story that we do want to talk about before we wrap up today's show surrounds the Nepali coach Umesh Patwal. Patwal is set to step down as Nepali head coach at the end of this series. A replacement hasn't been lined up as yet, but I have opinions on this, boys. And Go, Bez. No, no, no. I want to, I want to save mine till last, but it is an interesting time for him to step down, and it looks like it's the pressure from external sources coming to play here. An Indian coach, he's, he's coached in Afghanistan as well. He was the Afghanistan batting coach before taking the head coach role. It was always going to be a difficult task after the work of Pabubu. Uh, <laughs> I've done it, Tim Cutler. <laughs> I've called him Pabubu. The, the joke here is, if, if anyone's not aware, when we were in Namibia in the, in the press conference for the start of World Cricket League 2 in Namibia, USA coach Pabudu Dasanayaka and Tim went to, to ask his question to Pabudu. Never happened. All those tapes have been destroyed. And he all he could say was Pabubu, Pabubu. <laughs> Every possible combination. Uh, sorry, coach. <laughs> and I've just fallen into the same trap. But it was very difficult for Patwal to take over Pabudu Dasanayaka after the stellar job he did. And yeah, it just looks to be the pressure from the outside has been too much for, for Patwal who, who set to make way. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll mostly leave this one to you, Bez, but I would just say who would want to be a Nepal cricket coach? Eh? The, probably one of the most thankless jobs in uh, in world sport, I think. You know, coaching in general, you often get blamed for things, but with a Nepali fan base, it's, it's always going to be a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's and it's never good when these things leak out. Um, a lot of questions being asked as to who is running cricket there at the moment with him resigning, but the National Sports Council not knowing about it or CAN not knowing about it or the ICC. So it sounds like there's still a bit of confusion there as to to how things are are being run. But one can only hope with the reinstatement being, well, geez, how many months now? And we three or four months that they're starting at their house in order, appointing administrators and coaches and establishing a, a domestic structure but yeah the last thing you want to come out on the on the eve of your first home ODIs yeah and and I'll get started on this mini rant to you know to finish off uh the main part of our show and I think this comes back to what a cricket coach actually does and what the view is from the outside, not knowing necessarily what a cricket coach does. Now, it's much different to a football manager situation, and we see football managers lose their jobs all the time, and it's and that's on the back of you know losing the squad and and, and not having the support from from people within the club and and people within the team, and not delivering the results, and not bringing necessary change to the way a team plays while in a game of cricket. As a coach, it's a little different. A lot of the a lot of that role is actually placed on the shoulders of the captain, who needs to make his fielding changes, needs to make his batting order changes, and the coach is there more in a, in a consultancy role. And I'm not entirely sure that everyone really is aware of that. And as a cricket coach, you know, you're not teaching these Nepali guys how to bat anymore. You know, that was that was something that should have been done in their development from the ages of whenever they picked up a bat to the ages of, of 20, 25. And it's about that technical aspect is not in the job description of 
a national team head coach. That should have been established already in that time. And it becomes a point where we talk about things like mentality and the way that the team's supposed to go about their business. And I actually think that the the, the planning and the way that Nepal go about their cricket is actually very good. It's just been a lack of ex- execution rather than a, a lack of, of planning. So I think it's a little bit harsh on Pat Wilde, who's obviously felt the pressure of, of everyone on the outside. And the batting problems in that Nepali team don't come down to Pat Wilde's coaching. You know, he, he's been a coach of, of an Afghanistan team who have had a lot of success, you know, with the bat. So I think he has the credentials to be the coach. It, it's a it's a problem because there's not enough domestic cricket being played and not enough cricket at all being played in, in Nepal. You know, we see all of these T20 competitions pop up around the country. You know, if you're trying to develop 50 over play and 50 over cricket, and if you do have any aspirations of playing longer format cricket, T20 cricket's just not the answer for you. And I don't want to be one of those you know, geriatric people who sit there and say, you know, get off my lawn with your your T20 cricket rubbish. But at the same time, it's just a completely different mode of cricket. And it's just a completely different mindset that you need to be in as a batsman to play longer format, 50 over, and and, and ultimately four-day and five-day cricket. And I don't think it was Pat Wall's uh, issue or Pat Wall's lack of ability to deliver that. I think it comes back to just a lack of infrastructure and a lack of domestic cricket that a lot of these guys play. And I think once, you know, this newly reinstated board establishes itself and, you know, in a utopian world, I would have liked to have seen Patwell still the coach in a time where there has been domestic cricket because it gives you the chance to prove you can actually do it. Uh, I think he was on a high or hiding to nothing and, and knowing what Dasanayaka does, and he is a little bit of a super coach, but that's in generating match results. That's not in the development of, of players technically. It, it's it's a mental thing, and yeah, I think it's a very difficult role to, to come in on, and whoever does a job next will find it increasingly difficult. You know, there's a lot of talk that they want to look for someone from a full member country, and you know, that's great. You can find someone with all the credentials in the world, but if they don't understand the ins and outs of how Nepali cricket works and the resources that they're going to have at their disposal, you're probably going to find, you know, Nepal in the same situation with the next coach, no matter who it's going to be. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the um, the football manager kind of role and you, know, you, you look at other sports where the coach, in inverted commas, is usually more of a sort of management uh, strategy kind of thing. Uh, whereas, And I think cricket is certainly morphing into that nowadays more so than than being uh, you know the guy that fixes technical problems because you know as you said they, they should know how to bat you know they shouldn't need the coach to tell them how to play a forward defensive um so it, it is more of a mentality thing and it's interesting you know when when i talked to pabudu well said <laughs> about his um in um namibia you know his time you know with nepal and what he's doing with the u.s or what he was doing with the u.s at the time the stuff he talked about was more about mentality and team building and uh, culture you, you could put it that way so uh that was you know his focus um at least you know with the us and and, and that gave them some success on the field and obviously it, it gave nepal some success on the field as well so it, i think that is perhaps more of the focus of and you know that's that's why pabudu is so good at coaching is that he, he's able to get the best out of his players yeah where, where to next from nepal i don't know i think tim pretty much summed it up there's just not enough cricket being played and and um nobody knows who's in charge and and so administratively it's it's just a bit of a mess and flowing on from that and going to be inconsistent results. One thing I'll just add uh, to the point, and maybe it's slightly contradicting where you were coming from, Bez, in that I don't think 
these roles are ones that, that coaches from full member countries could just parachute in and start getting results where, yeah, a, a coach's job should be dealing with players who are developed to a certain level where they're playing international cricket. But in the emerging cricket world, you may have had players that have come from obscurity, and I mean real obscurity. They may have been training in the park, um, been seen... Um, when someone went regional for a for a wedding and all of a sudden they're in under under 19 World Cup and of course I'm talking about Sandeep there but there's going to be a lot of times where players haven't had some core basics coached into them and, and sometimes this is an advantage don't get me right so I think an associate coach would have to be one of the more broader coaching roles you can imagine out there in the in the cricketing world and this can't be I think not given the credence of just how hard their jobs are, um, especially when you're dealing with people that are a lot of the time juggling other jobs with their, their create, create lives as well. So you're not able to get into these guys 24-7. So I just wanted to say that because it's all too easy sometimes just to say, well, you know, that people are expecting too much from these coaches. Well, I think a lot of the times these coaches need to go in with their eyes wide open knowing that they're going to be up for sometimes teaching some basic skills that a lot of players may not have been exposed to. And don't get me wrong, I know there are, a lot of these countries have established cricketing structures and it's not making out that these are, guys are all coming off the street to play national cricket, international cricket, despite a lot of people's opinions of what they think associate cricket is. Um, a lot of these people will have played underage cricket for their countries and and whatnot, but they really got to be careful about who they go out and get and not just go chasing the big names. The big name might come in, but not necessarily have the skill set for what Nepal needs going forward. Yeah, as a final comment, I think, you know, you, you've probably hit the nail on the head there, Tim. I'm just, my point is that Nepal, I think, is on that high end of the associate members where you would think that, you know, a lot of these guys aren't necessarily being picked from obscurity, i.e. other sports or just raw talent. It's just a case of not being uncovered and, and having the skills, but not being uncovered and then found through the likes of a talent hunt and, and other things like that. So again, that only proves that, you know, Nepal is a very murky place in terms of cricketing talent. You know, you'd like to think that the coaching is there and the quality of cricket is there because it's so popular. There's, you know, thousands and thousands of kids playing cricket. But at the same time, you know, the coverage and the exposure that a lot of these guys uh, potentially have developing, you know, their own cricket and, and potentially being options for domestic teams and, and the national team, that's where it becomes complicated. So Nepal is a very unique case and it's, yeah, it, it has the issues of some lower end associate countries, but it also has the popularity of, of a really strong full member nation in terms of how many guys like to play their cricket. So you would think that they would kind of level out. But yeah, again, it, it just proves that it, it's a very difficult thing to get right. And Nepal haven't been able to get it right for, for quite a long time now. Now to some news to wrap up today's show. First in the Pacific, and tributes have flowed for former Fiji captain Joe Rika, who died of an asthma attack earlier this week. The 32-year-old featured in the Fiji national team for over a decade, debuting as an 18-year-old back in 2006, before eventually taking roles as a development officer and the national high-performance manager of his country. The European Cricket League has taken place in Germany for the 2020 tournament. Four groups of four were joined in the new format, with Group B an early candidate for the Group of Death name. Four for sure of Scotland joined HBS from the Netherlands, with Cluj Cricket Club and Moscow Foxes drawn in the four. Group A contains England's Swordston, United Stars Cricket Club Darmstadt of Germany, Lund Cricket Club of Sweden and Helsinki Cricket Club of Finland. Group C pits Italy's Latina Cricket Club, Norway's Bjorvika, 
and Belgium's Ostend Exiles alongside defending champions VOC Rotterdam, while Group D contains CYMS of Belfast, Skanderborg Stingrays of Denmark, Minaj Cricket Club Barcelona and Druert Cricket Club of France. The tournament begins on May 31st. Cricket Hong Kong has been forced to cancel their home series with Malaysia due to the coronavirus. In a statement posted on their website, the national governing body supported the efforts of the government to curtail the spread of the disease, and they hope the series can be rescheduled later in the year. And finally, Namibia has announced a squad to take on Island A in South Africa later this month. JJ Smith has been rested with Ruben Trumpelman, a new face added to the group. Namibia will play three T20s and two one-day matches from the 18th to the 27th of February. To keep up with news from Cricket's New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket on your various social media platforms and make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you are listening to the podcast. For now, on behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the cricketing world.